If you brought your Bible this morning, we would in, I would encourage you to open it to John chapter 6. We're going to be in John 6, looking at verses 35 to 40. We're in the middle of a four-week series on some of Jesus' I am statements. These are statements that Jesus makes in the Gospels that give us some indication about who he is and who he is for us. It gives us um, truth about his, who he is, his deity, his mission, his providence, his care for us, and so on. There are seven I am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. The seven statements are these. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the true vine. Last week we looked at two of them. We looked at I am the good shepherd and I am the door of the sheep. And this morning we're going to be looking at the first of Jesus' I am statements. He says, I am the bread of life. He's using a metaphor here. He's calling himself the bread of life. And as he often does, as Jesus is, is the master teacher, he uses a physical picture, a physical idea to explain important spiritual truth. God brilliantly designed our bodies in a way that we need food. Our bodies need refueling. We need to be re-energized every day, multiple times a day, to keep going, to keep growing, to keep flourishing, to keep functioning properly. And in God's goodness and in his grace, he has given us all kinds of varieties of foods to meet that need that he created in our bodies. And he's given us this food for our well-being, for our thriving in this world that he created. He made our bodies to signal us when we need refueling. We get hungry, and so we look for food. We look for this hunger to be satisfied. But it doesn't take all that long as a human being to realize that as enjoyable as food is, seeking and enjoying food is not the big purpose of life. Food doesn't satisfy all of our life's hungers. We eventually discover that our soul is also hungry. And when our soul is hungry, we feel a drive to satisfy that hunger. Unlike all of the rest of God's amazing creatures, God created in mankind a capacity for the transcendence, a capacity to ponder big questions in life, a capacity to know God. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. God has put into the heart of you and me this sense that this life isn't all there is, that there's something beyond our existence. And the Apostle Paul addressed the philosophers of his day in Athens, Greece, and he testifies about the reality of the one true God and how he created us that we should seek him. He says in Acts 17, verse 26 and 27, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, 
that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is not actually very far from each of us. So ever since the beginning of humanity, we have grappled with big questions in life. Why am I here? How did I get here? Is there something more to this life than what we see? What's my purpose? And the biggest questions, the biggest hunger in our souls, is there a God, and can I know him? What is he like? How can I be right with God? How can I be accepted by God? How can I have my nagging sense of guilt and shame alleviated? What will happen after I die? What will it take to go to heaven? And questions like this can nag at us and eat at us to greater and lesser degrees over time throughout our lives. And we have this drive to try to figure out how do I satisfy these questions? That was the case for me in my teen years. I remember very distinctly really worrying about death and what happens after I die. I remember standing during a summer day in, in the backyard of Bob Sorencione. Who knows Bob Sorencione? No one does. I do. <laughs> and just wondering, I don't know why this popped into my head, but how can I know? How can somebody know whether they're going to heaven or not? And it just bothered me. And I wondered about, it had to have something to do with my good outweighing my bad. There has to be this cosmic scale going on. But the question is, how much good do I have to do? How much bad is too much bad? And I tried to push that question away and just push, push it away because it just bothered me. Our souls are hungry. The big idea this morning that emerges out of our text is this. Your soul hunger can only be truly and finally satisfied by faith in Jesus Christ. Your soul hunger can only be truly and finally satisfied by faith in Jesus Christ. So as we come to our text for today, we need to remember the context of it. At the beginning of the Gospel of John, chapter 6, Jesus is in Bethsaida on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee with his disciples, and there's this huge crowd that shows up. They're seeking after Jesus. John says it was a crowd of 5,000 men, which probably included women and children, which would have been probably closer to something like 20,000 people showing up looking for Jesus because they had heard about, maybe even seen, miraculous things that he had been doing. And Jesus knows that these people are hungry, so he tells the people, have the people sit down. And Jesus feeds this enormous crowd of people with five barley loaves and two fish. They distributed this food, more and more and more food, and the people 
had this food. They didn't just taste a little bit. They didn't just have a little bit. They had as much as they wanted, the text says. They had as much as they wanted, and they were filled. Their physical hunger was fully satisfied through what Jesus miraculously provided in multiplying this food. And not only that, they gathered up 12 full baskets of leftover food. An overabundance of meeting this need. This miracle was a sign that was pointing to Jesus as the Messiah. This is the one that we were all looking for, and here he is. And the next day, the people figure out that Jesus and his disciples were no longer there. They learn that they went across the lake, the Sea of Galilee, and they went over to Capernaum. So they themselves went across the lake to go look after Jesus, to go find him in Capernaum. And specifically, in verse 59, it says that the dialogue that then transpires happens in the synagogue. So let's read John chapter 6. 35 to 40. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And here they learned, and we learned, some extremely important truths about who Jesus is and what he offers. So let's look at five of these truths. First, we learn, number one, the deity of Jesus in verses 35 and 38. Jesus makes some astounding claims in this verse, verse 35, including a declaration of his deity. Most theologians believe that in all of these I am statements of Jesus, that Jesus is making a declaration of his deity. He says, I am the bread of life. Theologians believe that the way that Jesus used these these particular Greek words, he's making a claim of deity. I am. And if you know your Bible, you'll recognize that two-word phrase. It goes back to Exodus chapter 3, where God commissions Moses to lead the people of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. So Moses comes across this bush that's burning, and it's not being consumed. And he has this conversation with God through this burning bush. And God tells Moses that, I've seen the suffering of my people at the hands of the Egyptians. And Moses, I'm going to use you to deliver them out of their hand. And Moses asks God what he should tell the people when they ask, what's his name? Who was it that sent you to us? What's what's God's name? God says, I am who I am. 
Tell them, I am has sent you to them. Now, this name means that God is self-existent. God is absolutely independent. He is the uncreated creator. He is the uncaused cause. He always existed. He is God. He is Yahweh. He is the one in whom all other things find their source, their existence, and their continuance. God has life in himself. He is dependent on no one. There is nothing else in all the universe that God is dependent on. Everything else in all creation is dependent upon him for everything. And Jesus here is making that same claim for himself. I am. He uses the same words and he makes this very same claim in a very dramatic way in John chapter 8. He was interacting with a group of Jews. And Jesus says, starting in verse 56, he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. Now, why would they pick up stones to try to kill Jesus? Because they knew full well that Jesus was making a claim to be God. Only God is the great I am. And it would have been a great blasphemy, deserving death, if it wasn't true. But it was true, and it is true. The apostle opens this gospel with one of the most towering and transcendent statements about the deity of Christ, that Jesus is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father, and that he is the creator of the universe. If you want to look at it, go back to John chapter 1. In John 1, 1 to 4, John says this, the very beginning of this gospel, in the beginning was the Word. He's talking about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 14, we know that the word is Jesus because it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who did that? Jesus did that. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Who has made him known? Jesus has made God known because he is God in the flesh. We look at Jesus and we know God. And in our text for today, Jesus over and over claims deity. He claims that he was sent by God his Father and came down from heaven. It speaks of his incarnation. He is God in the flesh. He's the God-man. 
He came down from heaven five times. He says the same thing. Verses 33, 38, 41, 50, 51, all saying the same thing. I am the bread that came down from heaven, which confused the Jews that he's talking to. Not surprisingly, right? Imagine if your friend Bill came to you and said, and Bill said, I came down from heaven. You'd be like, what? Dude, I know your parents. You grew up on Lander. You'd be concerned. You'd be a little alarmed about your friend Bill. Verse 42. Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And they wanted some kind of proof. You're making some kind of an incredible claim here, Jesus. Prove it to us. We want to see some big miraculous thing that you can do if you're God. We need a big-time miraculous sign like the manna from heaven. It's got to be bigger than that. Can you do something even bigger than that, Jesus? How quickly they forgot where they got their last meal. He doesn't then go on to try to prove his claim to them to explain all the mechanics about how that could be. Guys, remember the beginning of the book where it says that I was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary? He doesn't say any of that kind of stuff. He basically just says, you don't believe it because the Father hasn't drawn you. The Father hasn't enlightened you to this truth. You haven't come to me as your Savior. He doesn't defend his claims of deity. He just declares it. Jesus is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And this is critical to Jesus' claim to be able to give eternal life. Only God, the divine creator and sustainer of life who has life in himself, is able to give life to all those who come to him by faith. Your soul hunger can only be finally and fully satisfied in Jesus Christ, God the Son. We see the deity of Jesus. And second, notice the exclusivity of Jesus, the exclusivity of Jesus. Notice what he says in verse 35. I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. He didn't say, say anything like, I am a bread of life. It speaks of the fact that he's the only one who can truly be the, the bread of eternal life. He's the only one. He's not just a slice of the bread of life, equal with the others, equal to other spiritual leaders and religions that can also give life. He's not one of many ways to God, many ways to salvation. It's not like there's different varieties of kinds of bread, like wheat bread and, and white bread and pumpernickel bread and rye bread, and, and all these can give you life. There's only one bread of life, says Jesus, which is totally offensive to a pluralistic culture like ours. where we're expected to treat all beliefs as equally valid or equally true. 
We would be absolutely unfaithful to Scripture if we were to hold that view. We would be contradicting God himself. There is no other bread that gives life, new life, eternal life. Jesus is the true and only bread of life who came down from heaven, and that's what he's saying here. The Apostle John later says in 1 John 5, verses 11 to 12, that eternal life is contained in Christ alone. He couldn't be more clear. Listen to what he says. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's really that stark, and it's really that beautiful. God gave his Son that you might have life. And you can have that life in the Son. Jesus didn't make any apologies for this exclusivity because it's true. If he said anything else, he would be lying. We see the exclusivity of Jesus. And then number three, we see the accessibility of Jesus. The accessibility of Jesus. The critical question for you and I, as it regards this bread of life, is how can I get this bread of life? Where do I have to go to get it? What does it cost? Look again at verse 35. Jesus doesn't leave it a mystery. He tells us how we can receive this bread of life. Anyone in this room, anyone around the world, can have this bread of life. And here's how you get it. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever works really hard and cleans up their filthy life and keeps God's law and tithes 10% or more and goes to church every Sunday and joins a growth group and serves in a ministry and takes communion and gets baptized, is in an accountability group and doesn't swear and says, Praise the Lord all the time. And gets an engraved leather Bible and feeds the homeless and has a Bible app on their phone. Has eternal life. Is that what the verse says? That's what his Jewish audience apparently thought, something along those lines. Verse 28, they asked Jesus, What must we be doing to do the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God. Okay, good. Listen up. Peter, take notes. He's going to tell us. This is the work of God. That you believe in him whom God has sent. Believe in him. The work of God is not work at all, according to Jesus. It's faith. Believe in him. Verse 35, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
We see this over and over in this text. Verse 29, believe in him. Verse 37, come to me. Verse 40, believe in me. Verse 45, come to me. Verse 47, whoever believes has eternal life. No mention of work, no mention of merit on our part at all, anywhere in this text. The only work that matters is Jesus' work, his sinless life, his death, his resurrection. That's the work that matters. Jesus works. You believe. Jesus works. You receive the benefit of his work. There's one way to receive the bread of eternal life. Believe. Faith alone. Jesus is accessible to you. He is near to you. All you have to do is pray and you're talking to Jesus. He is accessible. Verse 35, whoever comes to me, whoever believes in me. He's not giving us two ways. He's using a parallelism here. They're essentially saying the same thing. And it doesn't mean believe in Jesus like a child would believe in Santa Claus. Or that we just agree with the facts of the gospel. Yeah, that rings true. Yeah, that sounds right. Biblical belief is trust. It is faith. It is commitment. It is surrender. Submission. To a person. When he says, come to me, he doesn't mean that you need to go find out where he is and go there. It's a reference to drawing near to Christ in your heart. It means to turn away from your self-sufficiency and your self-righteousness and to take decisive steps of faith to Christ in your soul. To take Jesus at his word, to trust fully and only in him, to trust fully and only what Jesus did for you on the cross in absorbing your judgment for you because of your sin. And then dying and rising again from the dead and ascending to the Father. Trusting fully and only in him. We don't bring anything with us when we come to Jesus. We come with empty hands, and all we do is receive from him by his grace, through faith. John says in chapter 1, verse 12, he says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus says it in another way in verses 50 and 51. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. You need to eat the bread of life. We don't just look at it and admire it and study it, or touch it, or smell it. No, you must eat this bread. Commit to it by eating it. And Jesus says this over and over in verses 50 and 50 through 58. It sounds kind of shocking, really. 
We need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And it would have sounded scandalous to the Jews. But again, Jesus is using a metaphor here. It's very clear. Eating the bread, eating his flesh, is equivalent to trusting in Jesus with a full-on commitment. That's what he's saying. It's parallel to verse 47, where he says, Whoever believes has eternal life. Verse 51, Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. Augustine explained it like this, Believe, and you have eaten. W.M. Henry says it like this, So the Lord, by this powerful metaphor, urges us to believe in him and enter into a relationship with him that is so intimate that it can be compared to taking him into us and making him a part of us. And he says in his prayer in John 17, 26, I made known to them, the disciples, your name, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Believing is eating. It's coming to Jesus and repenting of your sins and putting your full faith in him alone, staking your eternal future on him alone, and his atoning work on the cross by faith and following after him. There's an obvious allusion here. There's a a connection, in a way, to the Lord's Supper, where the Lord teaches us to eat the bread, which is his body, and drink the cup, which is his blood. But it's teaching two different things. Here he's talking about trusting in him, believing in him for eternal life, and then the The Lord's Supper is remembering what Jesus did for us on the cross by laying down his life and shedding his blood for us. They're different things. It doesn't teach that the Lord's Supper saves you. That would be a misreading of this point. As Christians, we love this song, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back, no turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back, no turning back. Have you come to Jesus in this way? Have you believed in him? Have you trusted in him? Full-on trust, staking your eternal future on him. There is no more important question in your whole life than that question. We see the accessibility of Jesus. And then we learn, number four, the vitality of Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't cease to exist. He didn't just disappear. Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, ascended to the right hand of the Father. The tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. We serve a living Savior, a living Savior who has life, who is life, and who gives life to those who come to him. A living Savior who satisfies our deepest soul hunger. Your soul will not be at peace. It will not be at rest until you have your soul hunger satisfied, and that can be only satisfied in Christ. 
when the Jews rode across the lake and found Jesus the day after he fed the 5,000. They were looking for more bread. They saw the miracle that he did. It was amazing. But they didn't understand the miracle. Jesus fed them in a pretty amazing way. But they were back for more because they got hungry again. And Jesus, the master teacher, took this moment to teach them about himself and what he offers that's far better than just this bread. Jesus knew why they came. John 6, 26, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Loaves of bread, physical food, only satisfies for a little while, a matter of hours. We get hungry often throughout the day, and we eat food to quell that hunger, and it satisfies us, and it's tasty, and it's enjoyable, unless it's kale or oysters or <laughs> coconut or biddle honeys or candy corn or some other awful thing. <laughs> but soon enough, we're hungry again and again and again. Over and over, day after day, year after year, until we die. It's a never-ending cycle of eating and getting hungry and eating and getting hungry, and if we stop eating, we'll die. Even the manna that God provided for the people in the wilderness, as miraculous as it was, was only bread. If they didn't eat it in that day, it spoiled and perished. They needed to fill their fill of the manna every day. They got hungry again and again and again. For 40 years, God provided the bread that sustained their physical bodies. And in the end, they still died, every one of them. The manna from heaven was a sign. It was pointing forward to the true bread of heaven, Jesus Christ. When Jesus fed the 5,000 with this miraculous bread, it was a sign pointing to Jesus, the true bread from heaven. And Jesus says you need more than just your hungry bodies to be satisfied. You need your soul satisfied. You need eternal life. He says in verse 58, This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Ephesians 2 says that without Jesus, you're spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins, and by nature, you are children of wrath apart from Christ. Your soul needs God. Your soul needs forgiveness. Your soul needs a Savior. Your soul needs peace within and peace with God. Your soul needs life. Your soul needs assurance of heaven. Your soul needs ultimate purpose and meaning. And when you come to me, Jesus says, I will satisfy your soul hunger to such a degree that you will no longer be hungry, ever, forever. And when you believe in me, your soul thirst will be quenched. You'll never be soul thirsty again, ever. The deepest needs of your soul will be satisfied forever. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. No more groping in the dark. No more nagging guilt and shame. Life. Eternal life. 
satisfaction in Christ. And I remember that very distinctly on that day when I heard the gospel, really put it all together. This preacher was preaching the gospel, and I was like, I see it now. All the pieces came together. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. And Jesus is the Savior. But I must trust in him. God turned on the light of understanding, and I saw it. And it was emotional for me, and it's not for everybody. But for me, it was like, yes, this is it. And I remember trusting in Christ in a simple prayer of faith to God. And that sense of peace that came over me, I just can't understand, I couldn't understand it. It was like, this is it. There was a rest, that question was satisfied. My soul hunger was satisfied. And Jesus continues to add pleasure to that satisfaction every day as you remind yourself of who he is, who he is for you, what he has done for you, and you worship him for it. We never tire of what God has done for us in Christ. And that's part of the purpose of the Lord's Supper. We regularly remind ourselves of the body of Jesus that was laid down for us, the blood of Christ that was spilled for us, that we might have life. We see the vitality of Jesus. And then lastly, the security of Jesus. If you're a Christian, not only does Jesus give you life and satisfy your soul hunger for now or for a little while, but he promises to keep you and secure you for the rest of eternity. There's full security in Christ. And that's an enormous comfort for us, isn't it? You can rest in the security that Jesus gives you. No doubting your salvation. No doubting your eternal inheritance. Jesus is securing it all for you by his will and by his power, his almighty power. Listen for the glorious ways that Jesus secures us to the end. Verses 37 to 40. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. But raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Security. If you're saved by Christ, you're saved by Christ all the way to the end. And that's incredibly reassuring. And we need that assurance. We need to be reminded of that because we can be so susceptible to the lies of the devil. The Bible says that the devil is the accuser of the brethren, accusing us before God day and night. He's whispering in your ear all the time, God doesn't love you. Look what you just did. You probably just lost your salvation right there. God's going to yank your salvation from you. Listen to the actions of God the Father and God the Son in your security. All that the Father gives me will come to me. 
If you're a Christian, the Bible declares without any ambiguity, without any apology, that God knew you and chose you before you were born, before the foundation of the world, before the world was even created. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, He chose us in Christ. Before the foundation of the world, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And then the Father draws you to Himself. He woos you. Jesus says in John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So God is drawing you. He's wooing you to himself. Then the Father gives you to his Son, verse 37. And all who are given to Christ will come to him for salvation, verse 37. God gives you the faith to believe as a gift, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. He gives you the faith to believe. And you must exercise that faith. And believe. And Jesus says, Come to me and believe in me. God is working and you respond. The Holy Spirit then indwells the believer, Romans chapter 8, and seals them. He's the guarantee of their inheritance until we acquire possession of it, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. And Jesus secures your salvation all the way to your final resurrection, verses 37 and 40. Jesus says much the same thing again in John chapter 10, verses 28 to 30. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand, including you. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. All three persons of the Godhead are involved in achieving and securing your salvation. You know, we come to faith in Christ. We hear the gospel message. We believe. We come to him by faith. We think we did it. God's been working behind the scenes, and you have no idea. It's beautiful. It's comforting. Your salvation is not fragile. It's not constantly teetering depending on your day-to-day performance. You cannot sin your way out of God's grip. The cross continually covers. You need to know that God is omniscient. When he saved you, he knew all about every sin you would commit on into the future. He knew every skeleton you had in your closet, and he saved you anyway. So you can't surprise God with your sin and wiggle out of his grip. His grace is always greater than your sin. You cost him too much in the death of his son for him to just let you go. Of course, that doesn't give you license to just indulge your sinful passions. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I don't say that. Paul doesn't say that. Jesus doesn't say that. Because of your security in Jesus, because of his loving kindness and grace, this should drive you toward greater holiness. That you might honor him with your life. As the Apostle Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. The security of Jesus. In this incredible text, we see the deity of Jesus 
the exclusivity of Jesus, the accessibility of Jesus, the vitality of Jesus, and the security of Jesus. So my question to you is, have you eaten of this bread of life? Believing is eating. Have you come to Jesus? Have you believed in him? Your soul will never be satisfied. It will never be at rest and at peace within and with God until you turn from your self-reliance, your self-righteousness, and take decisive steps in your heart toward Christ and trust in him alone. You may try to satisfy your soul with all kinds of other things. We do that. With money, with stuff, with more stuff, with better stuff, and friends, and girlfriends, and boyfriends, and whatever else. But there is nothing on this earth, no matter how alluring, that can bear the weight of your high expectations for your soul. Nothing, except Christ. Only the true bread from heaven can give life, and life more abundantly. Jesus is the only one big enough, and majestic enough, and transcendent enough, and loving enough to satisfy your soul. And if you're a Christian already, and many, maybe for many years, do you invite others to this bread of life? Do you tell others about how they can have their soul satisfied like he satisfied your soul? Is this even on your radar as you live your life day to day? King David encourages us in Psalm 34, 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you that you have sent out of heaven this true bread who gives life. Thank you, God, that you loved sinners enough to pursue sinners like us. To offer us eternal life in Christ. I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here who has not yet trusted in you, would you woo them with the truth, with your love? Impress on them that their soul will never be at rest until they trust in you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have given us this gift that we don't have to work for. Thank you that Jesus did all the work in our place. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you'd help us to remember, remind us in our spirit of what you have done for us. Continue to fill us with joy as we remember what you have done and what you have given us in him. In Christ's name we pray, amen.